Am I on or not? Wonderful. Don't know how these things work, but I'm glad they do. Can you imagine how Jesus spoke to 5,000 people and they all heard him? I was going to ask you a question to begin with, and then I read about a pastor who asked the same question in the middle of his message. And he said, everyone that wants to go to hell, stand up. He didn't know that one of his parishioners was in that la-la land, and all he heard was, stand up. (laughs) He looked around and realized that it was just, you know, no one else. And he looked up at the pastor and says, well, I don't know where we're going, pastor, but it's just you and me. (laughs) So... I'm going to ask you, do you want to go to heaven? Raise your hand. (laughs) All right, all right. Just so that we're all together here. (laughs) We're going to look at his will this morning. And I don't know, did you get anything up, Beryl? We think. Oh, there, it isn't back there, that's why. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 21, as you can see there, and it's, they're also in your bulletin, and uh, thanks to Judy Luganbill, we have uh, that there, and she provides that every Sunday, and you have an opportunity to thank or do so. These are words from the Lord himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of the Father, my Father, who is in heaven. Jesus states specifically here what we have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's the Father's will. So the question that comes out of that is, what is his will? That's what I would like for us to look at this morning a little bit. And we're going to have to not spend a whole lot of time on any of them because uh, they're just too much to cover. And and there are so many roads that I could go down to, so that if I get off into the bushes, say amen real, really loud, and I'll come back. Now, you're not going to do that. I just know it. (laughs) Amen. I said really, really loud. That wasn't amen. (laughs) We're going to start with repent. Number one, repent. I start there because that's where Jesus started his public ministry. It says after he was done with the 40 days of wilderness temptation, that he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. In Luke 13, we find him talking to a group of people about some who had tragic deaths. And he said, do you think they were more evil than everybody else? No, he says, but I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. Then we go to 2 Peter 3, 9. And the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think it's important to understand right at the very beginning, it's God's will that not one soul not make it to heaven. He wants each of us to be there. So we're not having to fight God to get in. He's doing his best to get us in. Okay? 
So when we understand what his will is, it's because what he's trying to do is get us through the pearly gates. If we were to say 2 Peter 3, 9 in a more positive way, it would be like this. The Lord's will is that no one perish, that is to be eternally separated from him, and that all repent. So what's involved with repentance? We know it's the word that means to change our mind, to do an about face and and those kinds of things. But in reference to our text this morning, doing the will of the Father who is in heaven, I would suggest to you that rather than repent of a particular sin and say, I'm not going to do that anymore, or this thing, I'm not going to... If we will change the way we respond to the Father's will, the others will all fall into place. Understand what I'm saying? Because I was born with the attitude, I don't care what God's will is, and I'm not going to do it. And you were too. Don't look at me like that. The Father's will, what He wants us to do, what He wants to do for us and in us. The word perish comes up there, and we need to understand that that means to be eternally separated from God. Uh, We... And he says here that part of the remedy for not perishing is to repent. I change my mind. I change my will. I change the way I want to respond to doing the Father's will. And Jesus isn't lax in in telling us what that looks like because he taught us in the Lord's Prayer, that's Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, how? (laughs) So now he's telling us how he wants us to repent. We need to repent to that point where we want to know and do his will just like it's done in heaven. Whoa. How's God's will done in heaven? I don't know specifically, but do you think anybody in heaven refuses to do God's will? You think there's any resistance to doing God's will? You think there's even any reluctance to doing God's will? No. That's the attitude I need to have, and I can repent to the point where I want to do the Father's will like it's done in heaven. We go to uh, Philippians 2.5. And there we admonished, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. And there is specifically speaking about his uh, humility to become a man. But the mind of Christ also is uh, understood when we go to the, uh, to the woman at the well experience. And after she's gone and the disciples come back with food for Jesus to eat, they offer it to him and he says, I'm not hungry. They said, how can that be? Did somebody else bring him food? And he says, no, my food, my meat and drink, my life's sustenance is to do the will of him who sent me. So to repent is to have the mind of Christ. To want to know and do the Father's will above all else. And this is vitally important because if we don't get this part right, the rest of what we're going to look at really becomes difficult, if not impossible. If I don't want to know and do the Father's will, the rest is not going to be easy, if at all possible. So what else can we look at? Number two, 
be reconciled to God, be restored to fellowship. Well, why am I not in fellowship with the Lord at that point before I repent or when I repent? It's because, as we read in Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities or sins have separated you from your God. That's what sin does. It separates us from God. So we're not living in fellowship with him. We're estranged. Sin has built a wall, a barrier that separates us. And Ephesians 2.1 says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. That means we're not alive spiritually. And that's equated with living in fellowship with the Father. We all know Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Sin, folks, is fatal. It's lethal. It's deadly every time. And what is sin? I want us to understand it so that when I use that word this morning, you're not thinking of something else. It is refusing to do the Father's will. Because what's going to keep me out of heaven? What did Jesus say was? Not doing the Father's will. Will sin keep me out of heaven? Yes. So I'm equating the two. Sin keeps me out of heaven. Refusing to do the Father's will keeps me out of heaven. So sin is refusing to do the Father's will. When we go to 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and verse 20, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And then it continues on later in the verse. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God wants to live in fellowship with each of us. He created Adam and Eve and had perfect fellowship with them before the fall. That's the kind of fellowship that he wants to have with us. But he can't as long as there's sin that is a barrier that separates us from God. So what do we do about that barrier? How do we get rid of that barrier that is a separation? There are two things that we have to do, and that's to believe and confess. And we're going to look at believe first, number three. And that word believe is important. It's amazing how the, the significance of the original language gets watered down over time. I've heard pastors say on TV, well, all you got to do is believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and go to heaven. That's just not quite true, at least the way most people understand it. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe with God's son. Well, then you're going to go to heaven. No, it's not what it means. It means to trust explicitly. It means to do whatever he says. It means to obey. The father sent his son, and he said, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here we have that word again, perish. And one of the things that we need to do if we're perishing is to repent. Here we need to believe in Jesus if we're going to not perish. And then he uses the, the phrase everlasting life. And here again is another one of those terms. You say, well, are you the only one that knows what it really means? No, no. But I'm one of the few who's willing to stand up and say this is what it says. Eternal life is not how long I live. I am a spiritual being. I'm going to live forever. Hello? Is anybody out there? Oh, will you take the light? Oh, it's so much better to see you this way. <laughs> Eternal life 
is defined by Jesus. Now, if Jesus tells us what eternal life is, is there any reason why we shouldn't accept what he says? Okay, because what is believing? Believing what he says is true. If we go to John 13, 3, it says, this is, now this is eternal life. Are you ready? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God the Father, the Son, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what eternal life is. It is having a personal Intimate relationship. The word know there is that Hebrew idiom that means that. Another word for it is fellowship. It's from the word koinonia, and that means to, have, to, to participate in and share everything. So if we're going to have everlasting life, eternal life, it's, it's found in the relationship that we have and experience with God. And that's what he wants for us, to live in fellowship with him. So we believe that Jesus is God's son. We believe that what he did on the cross is what enables the Father to forgive and to do whatever else is necessary so that we can live in fellowship with him. That's what God wants. I'm so glad he wants it because we're not banging on the Lord on the door of heaven and say, please do this for me and please. God's waiting for us to believe and confess because that's number four, to confess. John 1, 1 John 1, 9, it, it, we all know what it says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, died as the Lamb of God for the sins of the whole world, he died in our place. Thank you, Jesus. He died in our place. God can forgive us. And when he forgives us, the scripture says he takes the sins away. And what were the sins before? They were a barrier between me and God. He removes the sins, puts them in the sea of his forgetfulness. I don't know where that is, but it's probably full. He separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? I, whew, I'm glad they're, that, they're far, that far gone. But the sins are gone. They're forgiven. The barrier that prevented fellowship with the Father has been removed. There's the death penalty that every sin carries with it. Do you realize that? If I sin once, I have one death penalty. If I sin twice, I have two death penalties. If I sin a thousand times, I have a thousand death penalties. Every sin carries with it. Now, remember, sin is refusing to do the Father's will. Every time I refuse to do the Father's will, it carries with it the death penalty. But he pardons the penalty. Hallelujah. That's what he does. Then we're reconciled. Then we're having fellowship. Then I can know him. When he was talking to Nicodemus, it was to be born again, to be saved. All those terminologies that we use. This is what God wants for us, to live in fellowship with him. What does it take to be reconciled? Believe that Jesus Christ is his son. Do whatever he says and then confess. Tell God, I'm sorry for what I did. Yes, it involves that. But 
if we'll look at a bigger picture, rather than trying to remember every sin that we've ever committed and try to, you know, confess those, if we'll simply confess that I have lived a life refusing to do your will, and then we need to add to that, I deserve to be separated from you forever. You realize that? All I will ever deserve is to be eternally banished from the presence of God. I need to remind myself of that frequently because I get a pity. Have you ever had a pity party of one? Well, I didn't deserve that. Oh, don't, don't, don't. Uh, Don't ask for what you deserve. We deserve to be separated forever. And that's all we'll ever deserve. 10,000 years into eternity, that's all we'll deserve. But look what we have. Look what we have. Look what he's promised to us. Look what his will for us is to be with him in heaven. And what do we deserve? To be separated. But he has done everything necessary so that we can enjoy him for eternity. Hallelujah. Number five, what does God, what is his will? His will is that we walk in the light. That is that we obey. That is that we do his will. And again, it's another familiar verse of scripture, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, eternal life with him, one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The gift of God is eternal life. We're brought into fellowship with the Father. But that fellowship has to be maintained. It's not automatic. It's not forever just because we have it. If we walk in the light, then we have continued fellowship. What if I don't walk in the light? What if I refuse to do the Father's will? Then I'm not walking in the light. I'm walking in darkness. Light and darkness in the scripture are are the opposite. Light is obedience. Darkness is disobedience. If I walk in the light, and that's continued. You see, I'm walking. Now, I was standing over there. It doesn't say stand in the light. It says walk in the light. We're ever progressing. New light is received. New understanding of his will is received. We're constantly being obedient. And as we are constantly being obedient, we continue to have fellowship. But if I refuse to walk in the light, which would say this is this way, and I turn my back on God and walk in darkness, because that's what I have to do to walk in darkness. I have to turn my back on God. Because he's light. Walk away from him. Now, I've, now I have sin. What does sin do? Barrier. No fellowship. You see it? I mean, it's... it's To me, it's as plain as the nose on my face, and that's pretty plain. So we walk in the light. We do what he says. We want to know what his will is. We want to obey. Why? Because we repented, remember? See, if you don't say, I'm going to do the Father's will, I want to know what it is, I want to do it like it's done in heaven, when we receive new light, there's going to be a 
No, no, I don't want to do that. Then we come to number six. And this blows our minds. 1 Peter 1.16, be holy. Be, what? Be holy because I am holy. God speaking. Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart. What's the blessing that's coming to the pure in heart? Is it all up there? What do they get to do? Oh, who gets to see God? What if I don't have a pure heart? Ooh. Ooh. Think about that one for a while. The pastor used this one last week, Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when we look at those, they're overwhelming. We say, no way, Jose. You know, that's not going to happen. But if God wants it, it can be experienced. If God wants me to be perfect, that's his will. And the only way I'm going to get into the kingdom of heaven is to do the will of the Father. Then he's going to have to do it because I can't make myself perfect. I can't make myself pure. I can't make myself holy. But he can. For him to insist that I be holy and there's no way for that to happen is to exclude me from heaven. But he wants me there. So if he says be holy, it's because I can be. If he says be pure, he says it's because I can be. If he says be perfect, it's because I can be. You say, well, I don't understand all that. Join the club. I don't know what it is. I don't know all that that means. But I do know that if God's going to do it for me and he does it, he'll do it to his expectations. Hello? If he wants me pure in heart, he's going to have to do that, and it's going to satisfy him. If he wants me to be perfect in love and obedience, he's going to have to make that possible. And if it satisfies him, it's going to satisfy me. If God wants it, it can happen. If it's his will, it can be realized. And this is just a side, and, and I'm, I know I'm going down the side street, so you don't have to say amen. But think about the church, the bride, the body of Christ. When you get home, look up scriptures that, dis, that describe or define the bride, the body, and the, and the church of Christ. And guess what words it uses? Holy, pure, perfect. That's what the those are metaphors for a group of people. And that group of people is described as the bride, the body, the church of Christ. Pure, holy, perfect. If this is the group of people over here that make up the church, they're all holy, pure, and perfect. Because that's what the church is. If I'm not, can I be a part of the church? What happens to the church if I try to be part of it? It's no longer holy, pure, and perfect because I'm there. What about the body of Christ? 
the same group of people, just a different definition. Pure, holy, and perfect. Can I be part of the body of Christ if I'm not pure, holy, and perfect? Think about it. All right, back on track. Number seven. The way that we become holy, pure, and perfect is to be sanctified holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. And this is God's will for everyone. And this is what Jesus died to provide. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. That is, he was crucified on the cross outside of Jerusalem. Jesus, when he died on the cross, not only made provision for the forgiveness of our sins, but he made provision for the purity of our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. He did it all because God knew there's no way we could do it. Hebrews 15, 16. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And, and if those aren't sufficient, then I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And it, it can't get any more clear than this, can it? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What do I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? I have to do his will. What is his will? That I be sanctified. It's his will. And if I repented, what do I want to do? I want to know and experience his will. Shake your head. Nod your heads like this. You don't have to say amen if you don't have to. You don't want to. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May God himself, the God of peace, Sanctify you through and through. Say yes, but to sanctify has two meanings. Yes, it does, and I'm glad you brought that up. One is to consecrate or to dedicate to God. The things, the utensils that were used in the temple were sanctified. They were dedicated to God to be used for his purposes. Ask Belshazzar what happens when you use something that's dedicated to God that's holy and pure and perfect in an ungodly way. He died that night. Yeah. Consecrate, dedicate, yield, submit, whatever terminology it is that best describes it in your mind to, to make yourself available to God without any conditions. That's our part. I sanctify myself. I give myself totally, unreservedly to the Father to use as he sees fit, any way he sees fit, whenever he sees fit. Then his part to sanctify is to purify what, I, he, what I've given to him. Because can he use me as he wills? Can he do with me as he wants? If I have a nature within me that is constantly shaking its fist in his, head, in his face and saying, no, I'm not going to do it. No. No. I've repented that I want to do the will of the Father. I want to know what it is. But then there's that something that rises up on the inside and says, no, 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 no. 
And I'm constantly having to fight the battle. Am I going to do it or am I not going to do it? And that's what Paul talked about in Romans. Remember in that crazy chapter that it's hard to understand what he says. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the good, the things I don't want to do, I find myself to doing. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he answers the question, I praise God through Jesus Christ. We can be delivered from the double mind. The mind that wants to, the mind that refuses to. That's the picture of the born again. We want to, but we don't want to. We say yes, and then we say no. And James is the one who describes it. Chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, wash your hands, you sinners. And that's what we did when we believed in Jesus, confessed our sins, and the, and the, the sins were washed away. And it says, purify your heart, you double-minded. The answer to the double mind is to have a pure heart, to be cleansed from the sinful nature, from the carnal mind. That's what <clears throat> Paul tells us in Romans 8. The carnal mind is enmity. How many have used that word in the last week? It, literally, it means hostility. It means to be an enemy. When we're born, we're born with something inside of us that is an enemy of God. Paul says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That simply means it will never say yes. It will never agree. It doesn't mean you can't, but you have to fight it all the time. It doesn't control, but it influences I have a choice. Am I going to do the right thing or not the right thing? Because I repented, I want to do the right thing. Because I have a carnal nature, it's going to say, no, we're going to do, we want to do this. We want to do that. No, we're going to do this. And we're unstable. The way to become stable is to have that which refuses to do the will of the Father removed, and that's done by purifying our hearts. How does that happen? By being sanctified. <laughs> By having the Holy Spirit purify our hearts from that nature with which we were born that refuses to submit to him. And I can tell you from personal experience, it is such a wonderful thing not to have to battle doing the God's will from the inside. There's always temptation and pressure from the outside. But on the inside, there's nothing but a desire to know and do the Father's will. From the inside. We know that this happened at Pentecost because the Holy Spirit came. John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, and fire is a symbol of, of purifying. And it, it says that symbolically there were flames of fire that rested on, over the heads of each of the 120 in the upper room, signifying in a, in a visible way the purifying of the heart that was taking place. Peter went to preach among the Gentiles. Told them the gospel of God. They repented. They were reconciled. 
And then God poured out his spirit on them just like he did at Pentecost. Because Peter went back to the council in Jerusalem and told him what happened among the Gentiles. And he said, God put no difference between us and them, giving them the Holy Spirit. And you, do you know what he used as evidence? He purified their hearts by faith. That's what happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Purifying the hearts by faith. That simply means that that attitude of resistance, that influence to always choose against God's will, can be removed. And what a, what a joy and a blessing it is to have that thing gone. To not have to constantly be battling from the inside. It is God's will that we be pure, holy, perfect, and all of that happens if we will be sanctified, if we will give ourselves to God totally, completely, unreservedly. He will purify us through and through. That's a good place to say amen. All right, thank you. We have to get a sign. Amen. Number eight. We're almost done. Woo! Better be. It's 23 after. Number eight, be filled with the Spirit. Oh, boy. Here's another one that we have a hard time getting handles on. Because it uses words that give a different picture than what it means. Oh, here you go again, Calhoun. You just always... In his message, Peter said that this is what... God has done. He's done what the prophet Joel said. He poured out his spirit upon the flesh of mankind. So we have the picture of pouring. And then we have the word they were filled. And so what does that draw? What, does, what kind of an image does that bring up in my mind? It brings up a container into which God pours something until it's full. It runs over the top. So that if my, if my cup is full and running over, then I'm filled with the Spirit. But that's really, that doesn't tell it like it is. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under His control. Say, well, where do you get that? Well, one from the word baptize. Before it was a a biblical concept, it was used in, in Jesus' day to refer to being under the influence of. They would say the land was baptized with famine or the land was baptized with a flood. It was under the power of the control of. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to come under the power and the control, the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what's beautiful is, when he removes that nature of sin with which we were born, there's constantly influencing away from the, doing the will of the Father. He gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and guess how He influences us? He's always influencing us to do the will of the Father. He's always saying, yes, this is what the Father's will is. Jesus said, He will guide you into all truth, which is the knowledge of His will. He will guide you into all truth. Not only that, He said, Stay in Jerusalem until you are endued or clothed with power. What kind of power? The power to be obedient. God said it. I want to do it. And he says, I'll help you. We can do this. We can obey. 
We can trust and obey. The song says there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Ephesians 5, 17 and 18 talks about being filled with the Spirit. And <laughs> oh, the, this, I mean, it's almost comical sometimes when you read the Word. Understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine. <laughs> now, if there's any question about getting drunk, whether or not we should or not, it says so right there. But I don't think if this were written today, it would use the word wine. Or even alcohol. Don't come under the influence of any mind-altering drug. Yeah, that's the significance of what it means. Because what, what does it mean to be under the influence of alcohol? Well, just go down the highway and start weaving and get pulled over. They do a breathalyzer. The alcohol level's too high, and they, they say, you're guilty of DUI, driving under the influence. Well, God says, don't drive under the influence of alcohol, live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So instead of D-U-I, it's L-U-I. Okay? Just remember that one. Live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And it's interesting, that, and, and if you want to know why and how, ask Dave. Because he can tell you what that verb form means. It says to be filled. It has something to do with the tense of the verb that means it's something that's done and it's and it continues to be done. So I guess if you translated it properly, it'd be filled and keep on being filled. It's not something that happens once forever. It's something that constantly has to be done over and over. I have to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I thought it was interesting that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, got up and, and spoke to the crowd. He says, these people aren't drunk like you think they are. It's, only, it's in the morning. They, might have a, they would have a hangover, but they're, they're not drunk. This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit descends. They're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So there's the concept of being filled. It's his will that we keep on being filled, that we live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And number nine, Bear fruit. John 17, 8. This is the vine chapter as we know it. Jesus says, This to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Now notice the word bear does not mean produce. Just, it means, it means that to ha have it hang on the branches of your life. But you don't produce it to then be your fruit. Hello? You know, if, if I'm doing it, whose fruit is it? Yeah, well, this is the Spirit's fruit, it's that you bear much fruit. And this is how we're going to prove that we're his disciples. There's another scripture that says, then they'll know your disciples, they'll know you are Christians by, his love, by your love. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 3. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness. And then we get to this crazy, why did they put in self-control? 
I mean, when I, they say, you know, you need more self-control, it, it brings to my mind the image that I need to get control of myself. But that isn't what this means, because then it's my fruit. It, it should read, if they're going to, it, it originally said temperance in King James, and, and because of the Women's Temperance Union, they just thought that that means don't drink alcohol, and so they changed it so that it didn't have that connotation, and they came up with self-control. But it would be better to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is a Spirit-controlled self. A spirit, it's His fruit who's controlling me because I'm yielded to Him. I'm living under His influence. So there we have it. You say, is that all of God's will? <laughs> oh, dear, no. This just is His will in regard to our relationship with Him. What His will is for each of us individually will be will be different. There are some things that are God's will for everybody, but it was his will for me to be a pastor. It's, it, it was God's will for Dr. Purdue to be an evangelist. How many for you, else of you out there have that is what God's will is for you? See? So we need to work out what God's will is and who's going to guide us into knowing what his will is. The Holy Spirit, if we will live under his influence, will let us know what the Father's will is and then he'll help us to do it. It's just amazing to me to realize that all of this is what God wants for us. This is his will. Wow. Who wouldn't want to experience his will? You all raised your hands and said, I want to go to heaven. And Jesus said, if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to do the Father's will. And then this is the outline that shows us exactly what we need to do and what God wants to do so that we'll qualify for entrance into the kingdom. God's done it all for us. Hallelujah. By grace, not by works. But it doesn't mean there aren't things we have to do. We have to follow his will. Recap. What is his will? That we repent that we be reconciled, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we confess our sins and that we deserve to be separated from him, that we walk in the light, continue to walk in the light so that we can maintain fellowship, that we be pure, holy, and perfect, and that's accomplished by being sanctified where we present ourselves to God and he purifies our hearts. We, are, we live under the control of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. We are, be, we are being filled on a regular basis and then we bear the fruit, his fruit, love, joy, peace. Now, I answered one question in part. What is his will? The second question is, is that what I'm doing? Does that describe me? Can I say yes to all those? If not, we need to. Why? Because if this is his will, and the only way to get into heaven is to do his will, then I have to be doing all those things. Yeah. Nod your head this way. Say amen or hallelujah, whatever. I want you to get to heaven. I want to get to heaven. 
and I'll get through the gates of Pearl. Because I stand, when I get there, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful. Faithful. Not hit and miss, but consistently faithful to do his will. Do his will. Do his will. Is it difficult? Not if you've repented, because that's what you want. Is it difficult? Not if you've been sanctified, because the nature of resistance has been removed. And this Holy Spirit who wants to do the Father's will in us and through us is there to live with us continually. How are you answering that question? Am I doing the Father's will? Let's pray. Wow. Everything that we need to do so that we can live with you forever, you've made possible. Thank you. Praise your holy name. You're for us, not against us. You're wanting each of us to be part of your kingdom forever. Lord, I know that you have been doing your office work in the hearts and lives of your people. And there may be some this morning who are saying, well, I don't know that that's what I'm doing, or I don't know that I've done that. Lord, just in the, the quietness of this moment, without pressure, without saying, if, if there's something that you're talking to your children about or those who need to come into fellowship with you, Holy Spirit, would you just go to them right now and give them the courage to say, I want to talk with God about what's going on in my life. And then prompt them to say, yes, Lord. Yes to your will and to your way. I will trust you and obey. When the Holy Spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'm going to agree. My answer will be yes, Lord. Yes. Stand to your feet. We're not going to sing, but if you would like to come Kneel at the altar and, and talk with God about your qualifications for getting into the kingdom. I would be remiss not giving you the opportunity to do so. So just in the quietness, if you really want to get to heaven, and there's any part of this that you're not doing that would prevent you from getting there, I think it'd be wise to make sure with our heads bowed, just quietly slip out from where you are. Say, I want to know your will, Lord. I want to do your will. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done. For the hope of being with you forever. Hallowed be your name.